I'm Corey Shockey at the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic. Today we are talking with Robert Ward, a new member of the IISS. He is both the Japan Chair and the founding director of our geoeconomics program. We talk about the disaster of Gorbachev's choice to make Russia an alcohol-dry country. We talk about the days when Japan was the future. Whether Xi Jinping is one of the worst leaders China has ever had, uh, whether China's growth is sustainable, and what a bifurcation of the globalized economy might do. And lastly, we talk about 16th century Spain and the tax implications for American hegemony. I hope you'll join us. I'm Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of this magnificent institution, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to showcase the extraordinary analytic uh, richness of the IISS. And I'm extremely pleased that today we have new to our ball club, the great Robert Ward who is both the Japan chair and the head of our new geoeconomics program here at the IISS, part of our effort to become genuinely ambidextrous as, as national security experts by Robert's going to be responsible for training all of our reflexes to incorporate economic elements into our approaches, as well as designing a program. And we're going to talk about the kind of program he wants to design. He comes to us from the Economist Intelligence Unit, where he was the editorial director of a staff of 200 some uh, and doing extraordinarily good work there since 1997, where he actually started as a Japan analyst, if I'm not mistaken, after graduating from Cambridge with a degree in modern languages. How, chart your path for us, Robert. How do you go from studying modern languages to becoming a Japan expert to becoming um, an editor of the finest publication in the world. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction, Corey. A pleasure and a privilege uh, to be here. Very excited to be uh, joining the IISS uh, as well. Um, my, uh, my trajectory uh, came via languages, I suppose. I'd always been interested in, in how other people, other cultures think. Um, I started with French like everybody, like everybody does in this country. Uh, and then uh, my father made me, gave up, made me give up Latin, uh, which I was very angry about, but he made me do <laughs> German instead. Um, and then, which actually was probably better in the, in the long run, um, than, than Russian. Um, so always interested in, uh, in, in abroad. Um, I went and, and lived uh, for a couple of years in, in Germany. I was lucky enough to be able to go to university briefly in the Soviet Union in the, in the very cold winter of 1986. Wow, uh, just after what an interesting time to be there. Very interesting time to be there. Um, Gorbachev had just taken power. Um, he banned, just banned the sale of all alcohol in Russia uh, as well. So quite a sort of difficult time uh, in the evenings uh, in long, long Russian winters. Did the um, ban work? What were the effects of it? The ban worked to make Gorbachev really unpopular. Right. Uh, so, so all the uh, I was in a uh, quite an important town, still is quite an important town called Varonezh, and um, all the bars in uh, Varonezh were turned into ice cream parlors. So um, that's how you got your kicks with uh, with a nice ice cream. 
Um, and of course, Russians, uh, they found their way around the ban and, and made their own alcohol and so on, which created other problems. Yeah. So uh, I think Gorbachev's um, impetus was right to try and improve Ru Russian productivity, but obviously politically it was, uh, it was disastrous. So, um, and then from then on, uh, I went, I thought, right, where's, where's the future? And in the late 1980s, it was Japan. Um, if you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about by when I say Japan's yeah. going to take over the world. Um, and in a sense, it, 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 it was the future, but not in the way I anticipated. Huh. It was the future in the sense of aging, uh, large debt burden, uh, huh. deflation, um, zero interest rates, and so on. Um, but obviously, you know, at the time, late 1980s, I was lucky enough to catch the tail end of the bubble as well. So really seen the trajectory of Japan from, uh, from bubble burst uh, to, to what it is now. So bridging your work on Japan and your geoeconomics work, a fair amount of which I surmise might have to do with China's burgeoning role in the international order and what it means for more established powers. Do you see any uh, useful parallels between Japan in the 1980s and China now? Or is there just too much that's different about their economic circumstances to make it a useful set of parallels? Well, your, your question is one of the, the big sort of question marks over China. I mean, is it going to, is it going to become like Japan was in the, in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, and in, in a sense, there are similarities. One is the debt burden in, in China, of course. It's over, I think, over as, as a percentage of the economy, total debt's about 300% uh, of the economy. That's very, very high for a country um, at China's level of development, very, very high indeed. So obviously, obviously quite a lot of worry about that in the longer term, not in the short term, because the capital accounts closed, but in the longer term, the impact of that just as Japan had, had lots of debt in the uh, 80s and 90s as well. One of the things I learned from the economist Carmen, Re Carmen Reinhardt is that once you get about 100% of GDP in debt, um, that you never really claw your way out. Yes, it's like having a credit card that's sort of three times your salary, the, out the outstanding balance. So clearly um, it, it's difficult without, without significantly faster growth. And of course, Japan's not really in a position to deliver that given that the population is, is, is now falling. Yeah. Um, on, on China as well, um, China's aging. and China's got one of the fastest aging populations in the world. So obviously a huge population, but... Uh, uh, the one-child policy relaxation, um, that hasn't really worked. Um, it, 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 unfortunately, it's not like you can just sort of switch on children um, even if you sort of uh, relax policies. That hasn't worked uh, pretty much like all over East Asia, actually. This is a problem for South Korea, for, uh, for Hong Kong, other, other places, Taiwan as well. So you've got the debt burden in, in common with, Chi with, with Japan, the, the demography, um, the slowing uh, of, of growth as well. So there are some similarities. Um, where I think it's slightly different though is that China does have more growth in it uh, and is, I think, um, is sort of at the moment certainly a more um, dynamic economy. But I think the, the, next, the next decade for China is going to be really difficult, uh, really challenging. I suspect more challenging than at any point since Deng Xiaoping opened, uh, started the Great Opening in the late 1970s, because all these internal, internal problems. And do you think that dif 
to what extent is that difficulty aggravated by policy choices, the consolidation of power personally in Xi Jinping looks to be an outlier in how China had been governed for the last uh, 40 or 50 years, the uh, repression, the sort of uh, Han, Han uh, ethno-nationalism, the uh, real aggressiveness of the South China Sea. What it looks like to me is that uh, China has activated very early in their grand plan uh, the prospects for antibodies to prevent their further growth. Uh, do you see any strategy that gets them around that? It's a very good point, and I, th I suspect that Xi Jinping is shaping up potentially to be one of the worst leaders uh, China's had certainly for a long time. He's, I mean, one of the beauties about the collective leadership that um, that, that was the case until she uh, changed uh, the rules a, a couple of years ago was the sort of diffusion of responsibility if things go wrong. So it's a she, nice point. And just, um, it sort of makes the system flexible, a bit more flexible. Um, what Xi Jinping has done by making the whole system about him, of course, is build in a sort of a rigidity into the system, which is also a brittleness, ultimately. Um, and now everything is about him. Everything is about his survival. Um, and I think that this is, this is leading to some bad policy choices, for example, on economic reform. Um, you need more SOE reform. Um, the economy needs to depend less on debt. Um, you need to restructure the financial sector. You need to think about um, ultimately opening the capital account, RMB reform, all of that. But all of that is really, I think, being kicked into the long grass. And of course, given the other issues that we've talked about, like demography and, and debt and so on, you know, this, this reform of the economy is really, really important. And if Xi Jinping doesn't do that, um, I think he's storing up problems for himself uh, mm -hmm. going forward. Let's talk about the geoeconomics program. How I know you're just uh, settling in to Arendelle House, but give us some thoughts about the kinds of issues you would like to see the program take on in its shape, and also how are you straddling these dual responsibilities of leading scholarship on Japan issues in the Institute while also running one of its major research programs? Yes, so quite a lot uh, to do, uh, all, all exciting actually, and I think full marks to IISS for, for, for getting these two programs going, uh, the Geoeconomics program and the, um, and the Japan program. I think I see the Geoecon program as, as really key for helping us to understand um, the framework, if you like, for, for national power, security, statecraft, uh, and so on. Um, and I don't think you can do this without um, understanding economic drivers. Um, if you'd... I agree if, with that. If you'd um, just give you a sort of illustration of, of, of that, Corey. If, if you were to ask someone from the CIA or one of the US security um, outfits, what was the big, um, big thing they got wrong in the 1980s? It wouldn't be not, not understanding criminology or, or it wouldn't be under, not sort of or miscounting the guns and bombs in the Soviet Union. It would be failing to understand that the Soviet Union was about to collapse economically. Yeah, and and similarly with with the um, with bits of Eastern Europe uh, as as well. So, 
Um, economics now absolutely critical for understanding, um, I think, pretty much everything. So as we talked about before, I see the um, geoeconomics program as this sort of adrenaline shot into the, um, into the IISS. Uh, that will really sort of round out some of the great work that the, the people are doing uh, here already. Um, I think just to sort of to quote the great historian uh, Paul Kennedy, of which more later. Um, Aha. Yep, uh, he was to, he I mean, he was talking about back in the 1980s about the need to understand the country's <laughs> productive balances as well as its military balances. I think that's absolutely uh, spot on. So what I want to bring to the IISS is this sort of as I said, rounding out, um, understanding, um, for example, the big question about China, is Chinese growth sustainable? What if they have a hard landing? What would that do to their ability to fund their military? What would that do to Xi Jinping's um, view of his position? How, how might he get around that? And, 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 and so on. Um, I think, thinking about geoeconomics, it, it's, I mean, Paul Kennedy, as we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, was one of the sort of fathers of this sort of, uh, of the sort of geoeconomic view of, of the world, but I think if you think about just how how the world's changed since the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of China in particular, think of the speed uh, with which that's happened. Uh, in the 1980s, I think China was about one percent of the global economy. Now it's just under a fifth. Uh, absolutely staggering uh, rise. Then, of course, the decline of the U.S. in terms of importance from Forty percent of the world economy at its peak, down to about twenty-five at the moment. This has all happened within the space of sort of thirty years or so. This is really um, leading to tensions. Um, it's leading to uh, instability. I think it's triggered a sort of intellectual crisis, strategic crisis in the West. Um, and one of the important things I think to think about with China, because a lot of the geoeconomics thinking does sort of converge on China, uh, largely because it's a, um, a geoeconomic power. Uh, in my view, um, is the use of economic coercion uh, to get what it wants. And this, um, I think, we'll see more of uh, as, as we go forward. Um, the big difference, of course, between China and the Soviet Union is that China is completely embedded uh, in the global economy. You may have China in your pocket if you have a Huawei phone, for example, so really intimately connected with it. Um, and China is not afraid to use its economic leverage to get what it wants to ensure that vast swathes of the world share its uh, its view of the world. Yeah, any time. So I think this simple refutation of the argument that the Chinese are brilliant hundred-year time horizon strategists is the fact that that five years from now, you're not going to have China in your pocket if you have an iPhone, whereas now you do have China in your pocket even if you have an iPhone. And so the bifurcation of supply chains and the bifurcation of digital universes um, strikes me as something, if I were the Chinese national security advisor, that's what would keep me up at night, even more than demography, even more than Xi Jinping bringing greater brittleness into the system. Because um, China's current behavior seems to me predicated on a belief that nobody has a non-China option. And as recently as 15 years ago, the countries of the West had non-China options, and they're likely, with Ericsson and Nokia on 5G, for example, 
you know, my government's going to cough up $60 million to help two European tech companies get on their feet to compete with China. I think they're underestimating the potential for cooperative solutions among countries of shared values. What's your view? So you've identified something that's really, a trend that's really important that I think we want to, um, to delve deeper into with the geoeconomics program, and that's sort of the fra fragmentation uh, that, that's going on, whether it's uh, political or whether, whether it's economic. And the, 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 the sort of bifurcation into different ecosystems that I think you've, you've touched on, that's an absolutely critical part of the um, Sino-US uh, disagreement at the moment. So in, on the surface, um, the Sino-US uh, trade dispute is about soybeans and steel. Actually, um, it's about far more than that. It's about, it's about power. It's about who sets mm -hmm. the rules going forward. Um, but as part of this sort of clash, um, the world is sort of splitting into sort of Sino-centric um, parts and, and to Western-centric parts. Nowhere more so. And I think uh, one of uh, President Trump's pushes is sort of, he's actively pushing on this in the in the technology sphere. So you have two different sort of um, technological gardens, if you like. One you have China, which is state-led, where there's uh, there are no um, rules on privacy where they have access to lots of data and so on and then you have the western one which obviously has a different set of um, impetuses and the all the trends uh, so far are to, the, to an active splitting uh, of that and that of course um, it might make political sense if you're worried about um, about Huawei and so on but actually for the global economy it's incredibly bad news it's like trying to sort of pull the financial sector sort of a highly integrated financial sector apart like we had in the in the great financial crash, you saw everything was connected. Well, the right. world is still very, very connected. If you follow your iPhone around the world as it's been made, it will go in all sorts of different directions, right. all sorts of crisscross specific umpteen times. So the world is really very integrated, and that has and that is that has traditionally been a source of uh, of, of growth and economic um, sort of pushing things forward. But I think that's really under threat now. Um, so this 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 Chinese. Um, U.S. battle is about power, and this will persist. Uh, but it's not a China-U.S. battle solely, right? Because um, civil society groups in Europe are going to be just as upset about Uyghur detention camps as civil society in the United States is. In fact, maybe even more so. Um, and and so uh, the challenge for keeping an integrated global economy is not just going to be uh, uh, keeping governments from doing rash, reckless things. Uh, the American Congress may be uh, unique in its ability to do rash, reckless things, but it is not the only legislature in the world who, when the public says, wait a minute, why are they rounding up an ethnic minority and putting them in re-education camps. Uh, so, so governments may actually prove to try and be a break on social pressure coming in the West and, and possibly efforts by civil society to foment civil society pressure in China. We already see this with lawyers groups, with artists, none of whom have any of the kind of individual protections that people in the West can 
bravely take action domestically and have. Um, so there are going to be enormous individual consequences, in particular for Chinese, in this. Abs absolutely, and uh, sort of touches on another subject, which is how um, Western companies, when they're trying to interact with China, there's sort of access to Chinese market, for example, how they um, how they navigate this. On the one side, if you are a U.S. company, you're going to na have to navigate uh, political issues with uh, perhaps the U.S. government not being terribly pleased that you're that you're biggest markets in China and all the things you have to do. And it may prove unsustainable for Tim Cook to sanctimoniously say he won't uh, give the American government access to messages even with that they're going to build encryption so that the US government cannot even with a warrant have access to stuff that he gives the Chinese to in Apple products. Like, that space is going to collapse. And also the um, you know, the fact that if you're, if you're a, a foreign company and you're doing business in China, the, the, the idea that you can avoid these moral choices about dealing with a highly, highly, highly repressive government um, that will force you into taking a view, either t uh, towing the line of the Chinese government or, or um, making a stand, as we've seen with, the, with, with the, uh, these two sports um, entities recently and, and mm. then all these companies that have been trolled and... Uh, and, and attacked uh, for, for sort of listing Taiwan as a company and so on. So a whole load of other sort of... Or not listing Taiwan, right? Like you're gonna, you're, there is no avoiding the political blowback for choice, whether it's pro-China or anti-China choices. Exactly. The space is just gonna collapse. Exactly, which is one of the things that always strikes me is um, a kind of egregious, if I was a shareholder in some of these companies, I, I would be wondering, what is their risk management? You know, why yeah. they not? Why haven't they wargamed this? They're operating in one of the most repressive large markets that there is on the planet. Um, uh, all sorts of risks there. Why? Why haven't they wargamed it? And when they are in the sort of sights of when they have sort of fallen foul of what, how China views the world, then often they improvise so they make it worse. So this, this idea of risk planning, this idea that IISS has of the, the, the um, companies either foreign policy. Absolutely spot on. You and I and all of the sound strategic listeners missed the opportunity to pitch our political risk management services to Volkswagen, uh, which built an enormous plant in Xinjiang uh, and uh, has the Chinese government suggesting that if Germans are going to complain about uh, Chinese policies, then maybe China will complain about the reliability of German cars, which suggests to me that the Chinese believe they can, government believes they can deal with these problems in isolation, as though nobody has experience of Volkswagen cars, but also who in Volkswagen didn't see this coming and didn't do the political risk management for these kinds of problems. So we have strayed very far from our usual conversation on this podcast, but that is entirely fitting since uh, you are going to be taking over this podcast with my departure from the IISS, so you can structure it any way you want to. Please, though, Robert, give me as my closing sound strategic uh, episode, your sense of the conventional wisdom in your field that it has wrong? Well, I mean, I'm, 
thrilled to be look, going to be looking after the podcast. I'm not sure how I'm going to fill your shoes here, Corey, because uh, you have blazed a trail here. And even before I joined Double I Double S, I was I was glued to the podcast. So privileged to be able to do it. Uh, Thank so you, my friend. Wish me luck. In, in, I do in, wish in, you luck. In the venture. Um, on what the conventional wisdom's got wrong. Well, I come from sort of an, an, an economist's back, background and uh, economist background, and particularly since the great financial uh, crash, economists had a terrible rap, uh, basic, basically because they miss all the turning points and they get everything wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to laugh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, and I was looking at some quotes, and of course, Harry Truman, um, his famous quote that he said, bring me a one-armed uh, economist, because I can't be doing all this sort of on I always thought it was Nixon. It was Truman? Well, in my uh, search, it had uh, Truman came up. But it, Interesting. It no, I'm sure you're right. I just didn't know. So, and, and he had a point, because, you know, economists do like to, we do like to hedge our bets. Um, however, one of the reasons why economists often get things wrong, in my view, is because of anchoring. And it's a very human thing to do. So you look at the future, um, anchoring off what you know from the past. And we've all done it. I've done it as well. And you, you, you have this nice sort of straight line uh, forecast. Um, and my favorite example of, of the, from the real world of this is uh, from 1932, actually, when, uh, when <laughs> Lady Astor uh, was talking to Stalin in Moscow. So that must have been an interesting conversation to have been part of. <laughs> Fly on the wall in 1932, and she and Stalin was asking about sort of British um, establishment. He said, "What about that that Churchill 1932? What about that third ch Churchill?" And she said, "Oh, he's finished." <laughs> so they didn't get on particularly well. Uh, really wishful thinking on Lady Astor's part. Yes, but um, a beautiful example of anchoring about obviously Churchill's finest hour was yet to come. Anchoring off the past to predict the future, and I think one of the um, what people often do, and, and you've touched on it uh, today, Corey, is, 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 is with China, this, this assumption that China has this, is a sort of monolithic, um, long-term, has a 100-year, 200-year horizon um, trajectory for global domination, and everything will be uh, on China's terms and so on. And we've talked about the issues that China's uh, got, the demography, uh, debt, we've talked about the um, institutions and the sort of brittleness of, this, of the system. Um, I, I, I think that the global order is still up for grabs, and this is why we've got all this volatility and the sort of tectonic plates sort of mashing up against each other. But when I look at China, which obviously is the sort of biggest thing that's happened in the last 30 years, I look at a country that has many internal problems, um, doesn't quite know itself uh, where it's going, and is improvising to a great extent as well. So I think that what I would pick would be China is going to take over the world, that narrative. Uh -huh. I would just push back a bit on that uh, and think I think the, the actual outcome would be a bit more nuanced. Excellent. I feel like that's a great anchor point for the start of a geoeconomics program. And what about your favorite book? This comes back to Paul Kennedy in some way. It does, because um, I, for this podcast, I dusted off my... Uh, Paul Kennedy, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers from yes. 1987. And I've still got it. I've, I've chucked away a lot of my books, but I've actually, for some reason, I kept that one. And I've still got it. Um, when I was looking, uh, just doing a bit of Googling, bizarrely, I, in 1988, it was up there in the New York Times uh, non-fiction bestseller list with Trump's Art of the Deal. But uh, obviously, you know, Kennedy, he's one of the sort of, he was, he's, his was the first 
important articulation, I think, of, of new um, geoeconomics. And it, it came towards the end of the Cold War, just as sort of ideology was being overtaken by economics and uh, the political was being sort of shadowed by the economic and, 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 and so on. And what he did, um, beautifully, I think, he, he sort of identified the interplay of economics and, and strategy. Um, he warned of overstretch, and of course at the time he was, he was viewed, particularly in the US uh, government circles, being far too declinist, I think. Um, he got a lot of flack for that. Um, and he advocated keep, keeping the economy strong and finding that balance, that sort of sweet spot between guns okay. uh, and butter. Um, he got things wrong in the book. He, he didn't spot that the Soviet Union was going to collapse, which for a geo The argument that 3% of GDP spent by the United States constituted imperial overstretch always seemed odd to me when it was at the historic low point after 1945. Yes, I mean, so he got, he got some things wrong that actually in retrospect, you think they were pretty major things to get wrong, like, like as, as you've just said. Uh, the other thing, of course, J that Japan was going to take over the world, and, uh, and uh, you know, the seeds of Japan's collapse were sort of sown al already in the late 1980s. Uh, it's, it's sort of demographic turn and all, all the debt and the fact that bubbles don't uh, continue. Uh, but what I thought what, he's, what he got right, um, he identified the rise of China yeah. and its, uh, its economic strategy, and that was ahead of its time, I think. That, that was pretty... Um, that I was agree. Pretty I think impressive. it's a genuinely fabulous book. Well, also, I think, um, and fast forward now, um, the idea of imperial overstretch, and you're thinking um, the idea, you know, can the US keep up doing what it has been doing, given its relative decline, given it's obviously still, you know, streets ahead of other countries in, in, in many different ways, but the, the, there has been a relative decline. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting, the importance of political will. Um, and uh, with 16th century Spain, um, I think it made, makes a very good point that it failed because the elite wouldn't tax themselves to sort right. of fund all their, um, all their commitments. So I think at the moment, given that we, we talked just now about um, intellectual the crisis of intellectual crisis, strategic crisis, there's a political will issue in the West as well. Yeah. I think that you know, there, there, there is an incredible amount in, in Paul Kennedy's book that, that is still relevant today. Um, and of course, it's got that wonderful sweep of history. And I, was, I do love a book with a big sweep, <laughs> um, so 1,500 to 2,000, which is a long time away when the book is published. Uh -huh. It's a beautiful thing, so I would go with that one. Excellent. And the last question, last question, favorite data visualization. So because I've um, not been long at the IISS, and I'm sure my next podcast would be littered with IISS data <laughs> um, I have gone with um, what some of the excellent work that the um, economist is doing uh, on, on, on data viz. Um, and I've come up with this uh, fine map of the political map the US. Uh, relevant, of course, as we head into the, uh, the great year of 2020 and towards the, the presidential election. Um, and it's a map of the US that sort of maps um, concert ticket sales um, to US, the US political divide. And um, why I like this, there's three reasons why I like this. First, and I think all data viz should be this, it is beautiful. Yes. It is lovely to look at. Mm -hmm. um, and you find yourself going into this sort of 
world of concert music and um, it, you know you've got country uh, folk hip-hop R&B rock alternative pop Latin and so on and the sort of clusters of where these tickets are being bought for these concerts all, all throughout the US so first it's beautiful um, and then the second thing which again all good data bits should be um, it shines a new light on an issue um, and this time obviously looking thinking about the link between concert ticket sales and political preference I mean, that's not something that I I'd thought of income yes education yes but not uh, sort of music yeah it's a fabulous metric and the third one uh, why I like this is it tells me something surprising uh, namely that in the northeast and midwest areas where these lots of swing voters these are where the swing voters swung for Trump um, and this is where hard-edged rock is particularly popular. So <laughs> that was something I thought I would cogitate over and just work out what that ultimately means. I do want to ask you, Corey, if you find yourself reflected in any of these music um, <laughs> Maybe you'd rather not say. Uh, well, so actually, my native land of Northern California appears to have all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm clearly reflected in this map. Robert Ward, thank you so much for um, talking with us today. Thank you for taking over this podcast. Thank you for liking it while you before you even came to this ball club. And most of all, thank you for all the intellectual excitement. I know you are going to give the double I double S. We're lucky to have you. Thank you, Corey. As I said, really pleased to be here and can't can't wait to get going. Thank you.